Tom continues his teaching in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 18, and this section is verses 18, at chapter 18, verse 18, through chapter 19, verse 7. Please give attention to the reading of God's word. And Paul, having remained many days longer, took leave of the brethren and put out to sea for Syria, and with him were Priscilla and Aquila. In Cancrea he had his hair cut, for he was keeping a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and Paul left them there. Now he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they asked him to stay for a longer time, he did not consent, but taking leave of them and saying, I will return to you again if God wills. He set out, he set sail from Ephesus. And when he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and went down to Antioch. And having spent some time there, he departed and passed successively through the Galatian region and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now a certain Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus, and he was mighty in the scriptures. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. And he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wanted to go across to Achaia, the brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he had arrived, he helped greatly those who had believed through grace for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. And it came about that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper country, came to Ephesus and found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, No. We have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them too, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying, and there were in all about 12 men. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you, Lord, for your teaching. We thank you for your work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We pray your blessing on Tom as he speaks, and may we hear the word from you and glorify you with our hearts, for we pray in your name. Amen. Thank you, brother. Good morning. I hear uh, a lot of talk these days about being on the right side of history, and what's usually meant by, by that phrase these days is actually being on the wrong side of everything. Um, this morning's passage is about being on the right side of his story. It's about the importance of getting the gospel of Jesus Christ right. And it's about the fact that 
that doing that is everyone's assignment within the body of Christ. What links the two parts of this passage together uh, is two separate instances in which somebody needed to have their understanding of the story of Jesus Christ sorted out. The first of those someones is a man named Apollos, a man who was already mighty in the scriptures, and he knew and taught what the prophets had declared about the long-promised Messiah, about Jesus, but he did not yet know about the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of all believers. Uh, so after the events in this chapter, uh, after, after the education that Apollos receives here, he became uh, a very highly valued co-worker with Paul and Peter and all of those who were working to advance the gospel of Jesus in many places. The second of those someones who needed to be sorted out is a group of 12 men whom Paul encounters in the great port city of Ephesus, men who start out with a, a very limited understanding of some things about the good news, but who walk away after these events filled with the Holy Spirit and with power, equipped to be used by God according to his perfect will. In the first several verses of this passage in chapter 18, verses uh, 18 to 23, we, we see uh, kind of a narrative of Paul's travels that, tra that make the transition between his second missionary journey and his third missionary journey. As the passage begins, uh, Paul is in, still in Corinth in the region known as Achaia, which we now know as Greece. Corinth was the, the biggest and most uh, most influential city in that region. The last passage that we looked at before uh, talked about a couple that Paul had met there in Corinth named Aquila and Priscilla, who, like Paul, had the vocation of making tents. This couple was obviously among the first converts in, this, in the city of Corinth and in the whole area of Achaia. Paul stayed in the home of this dear couple for a year and a half as he faithfully proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ in and all around that city. And the reason I can say all around is because later in 2 Corinthians, the very first verse, Paul greets not only the saints in the city of Corinth, but, quote, all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. During his long stay in, uh, in Corinth, that city was his home base for a time for extensive ministry that, that went all over that region around Corinth that we know as Greece. Again, last time we saw that Gallio, the, the powerful Roman governor of all of Achaia, declined to entertain malicious accusations against the Apostle Paul by Jews who were there at the synagogue in Corinth. Through that gracious protection and provision of God, uh, verse 18 here tells us that Paul got to stay in that city many days longer instead of being arrested. <laughs> Luke tells us that Paul then put out to sea for Syria. Now, Syria would be his, his end point. Uh, the city of Syrian Antioch 
up here would be the end point of this journey, the second missionary journey, because it was the starting and ending point of all three of his journeys. But Paul set out to sea from Cancria, and my brother John got that pronunciation right. We tend to say Cancria, but it's Cancria, a, a seaport very near Corinth. He set out from Cancria, he sailed across the Aegean to Ephesus, and he wasn't in Ephesus for very long at this point. After reasoning with the Jews in the synagogue at Ephesus, as he did in every city that he came to that had a synagogue, Paul left Priscilla and Aquila there in Ephesus. This was a very important location for the advance of the gospel at this point. And Paul needed to continue, but he didn't want to leave that church without some, someone there that really got it, that really could, could help nurture that church in the knowledge of the gospel. And Priscilla and Aquila had spent not just a year and a half, but probably most of two years with him. So they knew the story very well. They knew the truth of Christ very well. So Paul then set sail from Ephesus to the to, uh across the, the ocean, the Mediterranean, to come to Caesarea, which is, again, a coastal town on the west coast of southern Palestine. And it's, Caesarea was spitting distance from the city of Jerusalem. So the next thing that he tells us is that Paul went up and greeted the church. He doesn't mention the city of Jerusalem, but he's talking about that first local church that ever existed on earth there in Jerusalem. By the way, when it says went up, well, Caesarea is a port city, so it would be at sea level. Jerusalem's on Mount Zion, so he went up in elevation to come to Jerusalem. Uh, we see in this, on this map that, that whole movement of Paul from Corinth to the city of Jerusalem. And then finally, Paul finished out this journey by returning to his headquarters uh, the headquarters of, of the, the church in the, in the Gentile world of that era, which was in Antioch of Syria. And before I go any further, I want to comment briefly on a couple of things that should get our attention in verse 18 of chapter 18. The first is the fact that when Luke mentions Aquila and Priscilla here, and then again in verse 26, he puts Priscilla first. Priscilla and Aquila. When he introduced us to this couple back in Acts chapter, uh, in, back in verse 2 of this chapter, right after Paul first set foot in Corinth, he called them Aquila and Priscilla. But now it's Priscilla and Aquila. Now Paul again mentions Priscilla first when he speaks of the same couple in his greetings to the churches in Romans 16 verse 3 and 2 Timothy 4.19. And he uses there the formal version of her name, which is Prisca, instead of the affectionate name Priscilla. Uh, but when Paul sends his greetings from this same couple to the saints in Corinth later, 1 Corinthians 16, 19, he again mentions Aquila before Priscilla, Pris Prisca. And in that passage, he actually tells us that by the time he wrote the letter to the Corinthian saints from Ephesus, Aquila and Prisca were hosting a, a church in their home in Ephesus. He met them in Corinth. Now, as my brother Paul Johannan pointed out when we were talking about this passage um, 
on Wednesday, this swapping of two names that we find here is reminiscent of what Luke did with the names of Barnabas and Paul in chapter 13 of this same book. In that case, the swap marked an important transition from a focus on Barnabas to a focus on Paul as the point man for the Holy Spirit's advance of the gospel throughout the Gentile communities all over the Roman Empire from that point forward. The one thing that I believe we should glean from this change of sequence in the names to Priscilla and Aquila here is that it makes it very evident that Priscilla was not just a silent sidekick to her husband. On Friday at our dear Betsy's memorial service, it was pointed out that in the exemplary team that God so lovingly crafted when he brought Mike and Betsy together in marriage, Betsy carried a bit more of the verbal part of the teamwork than Mike did. <laughs> you think? <laughs> Ken says. <laughs> I suspect that same thing was true of Aquila and Priscilla. That does not at all mean that Priscilla was more useful to God than her husband, or that Betsy was more useful to God than her husband. But it absolutely means that both of those women were exceedingly useful to God. In every one of the six mentions of Aquila and Priscilla in the New Testament, they are always mentioned together. Husband and wife, always mentioned together. Marriage is a marvelous instrument in the hands of God because in a great marriage that is submitted to God with Christ as the head of the man, the man as the head of the woman and of the household, God employs the differences in temperament and gifting and personality and everything else to make the two complete one another in a way that only God can accomplish. Where the man is less gifted or skillful, the woman supports and fills up what is lacking. Where the woman is left less gifted or skillful, the man supports and fills up what is lacking. It's a marvelous picture of God's concept of unity and of, of using people together to accomplish his work. Throughout the New Testament, we find women in active and vital roles over and over as instruments mightily used in the hands of God to build up and to nurture Christ's church and to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Bible presents a very high view of women as fellow heirs of the grace of life together with men and also as fellow ambassadors of Jesus Christ. The second thing I want to mention from chapter 18, verse 18, is Paul's haircut. Luke doesn't give us much detail about this, but he makes a point to tell us that after Paul left Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus, and just when he came to Kinkri and he was about to get on a boat and set sail, Paul had his hair cut for, quote, he was keeping a vow. Now, the one vow in the Bible that we know involved the length of a man's hair was a Nazarite vow. And it's explained in great detail in Numbers chapter 6, verses 1 through 21. We're not going to look at that, but it's the same type of vow that 
that bound Samson to let his hair grow uncut for a very long time. Under a Nazarite vow, a man made a covenant before God that if God would impart some kind of blessing of protection or provision, or in Samson's case, impart to his mother a child, uh, that, that, that the man then would separate himself to God in a special way for a time. He would abstain from any fruit of the grapevine, including grape juice. He would not draw near to the uncleanness of a dead body, including a close family member. And he would allow his hair to grow uncut for the duration of the vow as an outward sign to everyone that he had separated himself to God for some task or for some some period of time. At the end of that period of separation to God, the man would cut his hair. That didn't mean that his devotion to God had ended, but it displayed to everybody the man's acknowledgement that God had fully provided the, the blessing that had been requested at the beginning of that, of that vow. And it also commemorated that man's uh, fulfillment of his obligation to be separated to God during the time of the vow. Now, I say all that because what I, what I believe makes the mention of the vow and the haircut significant in this passage is that it explains why Paul was in such a hurry to get to Jerusalem. See, when a Nazarite vow was concluded, it was necessary for the man who had made the vow to go to the central sanctuary, which in this case at this time was the temple in Jerusalem, and to present offerings to the Lord as the the finishing out of the vow. Um, And so I believe that that Luke bothers to mention the haircut and the vow so he, could, he can explain to us why he's, why he's laying out this sequence of rapid-fire movement of Paul. When Paul gets to Ephesus, he doesn't stay there for any length of time. He comes back, but he's headed toward Jerusalem. Of course, Paul knew that he and all who belonged to Jesus had been freed from obligation to the letter of the law of Moses. But that does not mean that the, law loses, that the law loses its value to the believer in Christ or that it was in any way wrong for a Jew to observe any portion of that law out of love for the Lord. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul declares that he had become all things to all men, Jew and Gentile, in order that by all means God might use him to save some. Like King David, the Apostle Paul delighted in the law of the Lord because he delighted in the Lord of the law, the God whose character is displayed in so many very specific ways in that law. God demands of his children that our words to him and to one another, and I'm thinking of the vow at this point, God demands of his children that our words to him And to one another must be treated as sacred. Jesus taught, don't make vows. Just make sure that your yes is yes and your no is no. We are to be men and women whose word can be counted on by everyone because every word that we speak on earth, we speak as agents and representatives of Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean that Paul's vow was evil. It means that the 
But the whole point here is that our word is to be sacred. Uh, That's exceedingly rare in this world. We have contracts and litigation and the threat of litigation to make people actually mean what they say. That's not how we're supposed to do things, guys. Verse 23 tells us that having spent some time in Antioch, Paul then began his third missionary journey. He departed and he passed successively through the Galatian region. And this, we're looking now at uh, his third, the beginning of his third missionary journey. He went from Antioch of Syria, where he always started, and he came up here into Gal- the region of Galatia, including all these churches that he had planted during his first missionary journey, and then through Phrygia, and again, he came to Ephesus. Derek Thomas points out that if we add chapter 19, verse 1, to chapter 18, verses 18 to 23, Luke collapses down to just seven verses, a 1,200-mile journey that Paul took from Corinth to Cenchrea to Ephesus to Caesarea to Jerusalem to Antioch to Galatia to Phrygia and back to Ephesus. Seven verses. But in verse 24, Luke hits the brakes. There and in chapter 19, verses 1 through 7, Luke zeroes in on two very specific and relatively brief encounters. Now, that brings up a really great rule of thumb when you're studying the Bible. And that is to pay very close attention when the writer of any part of the Bible makes that kind of seismic shift in the pacing of his narrative through various historical events. When a writer is moving pedal to the metal through a series of many events, and then he slams on the brakes and he focuses in in detail and specificity on one or two brief events, God is telling us to pay attention. Luke is highlighting for us here the importance of these two personal encounters of limited duration, one involving Priscilla, Aquila, and Apollos in in the city of Ephesus in chapter 18, and the other involving the Apostle Paul and a group of 12 unlearned disciples in chapter 19, verses 1 through 7. We'll start with that first one, of course, and that is Apollos meeting Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus. And my subtitle here is Better Knowledge Brings Better Ministry. In these verses, Luke turns our attention to an encounter that does not directly involve Paul. Paul left Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus while he went on with his journey toward Jerusalem. He left them there to build up the brand new church that had just been planted there through him as he continued on toward Jerusalem and then to Antioch. In these verses, Luke tells us that a Jewish man named Apollos, who was from Alexandria in northern Egypt, came to Ephesus. He tells us Apollos was an eloquent man and that he was mighty in the Scriptures. That's quite a commendation. And he's talking about the Old Testament Scriptures. Luke also says that Apollos quote, had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus. Instructed in the way of the Lord, 
and accurately teaching the things concerning Jesus. But then it says, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. Here, as in all of the other passages before this in the book of Luke, the words, the Lord, mean Jesus. And the word Jesus means Jesus. So when some respected commentators question whether or not Apollos was a believer at this point, I'd have to scratch my head. Luke goes to great pains here to make it clear that Apollos had most of the story concerning Jesus the Christ, exactly right. He says again, this is a man mighty in the Scriptures, fervent in the Spirit, not fervent in his Spirit, fervent in the Spirit. And, he, and we don't know when or where Apollos first learned that Jesus of Nazareth, of Nazareth was the long-promised Messiah and Savior that the prophets had all talked about. But this was a man who both knew and preached the gospel of Jesus Christ to everyone that God set before him, speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus. Priscilla and Aquila first came across Apollos in the synagogue at Ephesus where Apollos was boldly preaching the gospel to a bunch of Jews who didn't want to hear it. But when it came to the matter of Holy Spirit baptism, Apollos knew only the baptism of John the Baptist not the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, that did not mean that he had not received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I'm not talking about the ceremony. I'm talking about the substance to which the ceremony points. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, Paul makes it very clear that every person who hears and believes the gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ is sealed by the Holy Spirit as a down payment of his eternal inheritance until the day of his redemption, standing in the presence of God. And that, that person who's sealed is also sealed, marked out by God as God's inheritance. It doesn't get any more certain than that, okay? But a person can be saved and thus sealed and indwelled by the Holy Spirit without yet having been taught about spirit baptism. And I don't, I want you to make clear, I don't differentiate between the baptism of the Spirit and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. I don't see one of those as some, uh, I can't think of the word, but ecstatic kind of an experience. I believe that the pouring out of the Spirit that we saw in Pentecost when the Spirit's coming down, this is, this is the Spirit coming to indwell Okay. But a person can be saved and indwelled by the Spirit and not understand what happened yet. Okay, And that does not mean that knowing that the beautiful truth about the presence of the Holy Spirit in the heart of the believer is something we don't need to know about. We do need to know about it. That's why Priscilla and Aquila take this man aside. God intends for us to know and to count on this marvelous relationship that he creates between us and the Holy Spirit when he puts the Spirit in us. Because that's powerful equipping every day of our lives as children of God. It's relational equipping. And the baptism and indwelling of the Spirit is 
part of a full and right proclamation concerning Jesus. This was the part that was missing from Apollos' gospel. The pouring forth of the Holy Spirit, just as the prophets had foretold, was actually a very substantial part of Peter's proclamation on that great first day of Pentecost for the church of Jesus Christ. He talked about Joel's prophecy of the Spirit being poured out. It's been important ever since that day. So when Priscilla and Aquila realized that Apollos had a hole in his understanding when it came to the Holy Spirit and baptism, they lovingly took him aside and they explained to him the way of God more accurately. Verse 26. Having thus been filled up in his understanding through these two faithful servants of Christ, Apollos was ready to sail from Ephesus over to Achaia, essentially following in reverse Paul's recent steps so that he could continue Paul's work of preaching the good news in that whole region of Achaia. As he prepared to set sail to go there, the brothers and sisters in Ephesus encouraged him and they wrote to the disciples in Achaia to welcome him when he arrived. Now, verses 27 and 28 present a vitally important contrast between two very different ways of pursuing a righteous standing in the eyes of God. The first one is legitimate, and the second one is illegitimate. Luke says that when Apollos arrived in Achaia, he, quote, helped greatly those who had believed through grace. Four, he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Now notice Luke does not say that Apollos greatly helped through grace those who had believed. He says that he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. It's the believing that is through grace in this passage. That's where the focus is. Luke is very pointedly telling us that the way these dear people in Achaia had come to faith in Jesus and had entered into right relationship with God was through grace, not through works. And that's where the contrast comes in. See, God's grace had brought those those people in Achaia to faith, and God's grace had saved them. Luke then starts verse 28 with the word for. He's connecting the two verses together, and he says, for he, Apollos, powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. See, Apollos had to refute what the Jews were proclaiming because their message was not a message of grace. It was a message of human merit, of the favor of God earned by law-keeping. It was a message that made Jesus unnecessary. We're still in the midst of that same battle right now in the world, and not just with Jews. One of the truths that starkly sets biblical Christianity apart from every religion that men have devised or distorted including the gross distortion of the law of Moses that leads men to believe that law-keeping can make them good enough for God. We, you and I, and every other human being bring absolutely nothing to the table to to commend ourselves to God. Nothing. The default position of every human being in the eyes of our 
perfectly holy and perfectly righteous God is that we are lost and dead in our sins with no defense of any kind to present to our perfectly holy and perfectly righteous God to whom we are all entirely accountable. The one and only thing that that any of us deserves from God is His everlasting condemnation. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There is salvation in no one but Jesus, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. He is our only salvation. In chapter 19, Luke brings Paul back into our focus. Now, Paul is well into his third and final missionary journey. Having visited the churches previously started throughout much of Asia Minor, Paul has again come to the great port city of Ephesus. And upon his arrival there, Paul found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, "Uh, Well, no, we haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. There's been considerable discussion in the commentaries about whether Paul's reference to these 12 men as disciples means that they were saved and were disciples of Jesus or that they were followers of John the Baptist who didn't yet know about Jesus. Derek Thomas, in his commentary, makes an excellent case for the latter understanding that the 12 men were disciples of Jesus but were not saved. Now, I've got a bunch that I was going to say, but I'm running out of time, so I'm going to cut it down and say, I, I believe these men were saved in much the same way that Abraham and David were saved, countless other Old Testament saints, by believing the gospel promises that they had received. And that made them absolutely ready without hesitation to receive the rest of the gospel promises when they heard them. For a lot of people, coming to clarity in their faith is a process. Kind of like, you know, being born physically is a process. But because it's all of grace, you know, we don't have to be all that concerned about the timeline. What matters is that it's God's work. Those whom he predestines from before the foundation of the world, he calls. Those whom he calls, he justifies. Those whom he justifies, he glorifies. I believe that these guys had been baptized by John and they were very much on the lookout for the one that John had told them was about to come. And now... Paul comes along and he tells them who that was. And they get to find out that that the mystery is over. Jesus of Nazareth is the long-promised Messiah. And then they learn all about the rest of the story and what was accomplished at the cross and in the resurrection. Here in in chapter 19, verse 4, Paul tells them, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him. That is in Jesus. That's the part that they most needed. They needed to know Jesus is the answer to to this big question. Okay. When Paul explained these things, and I'm sure there was a lot more conversation than is recorded here, when he explained these things, these 12 men immediately without reservation, embraced Jesus as the Savior that they had longed to know, and they were baptized in his name. Paul laid hands on them, and the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. 
They were ready to hit the road for Christ. Now, conclusion here. I'm going to talk a little bit about how clarity and effectiveness happen in the church. In each of the two personal interactions that we find here at the end of chapter 18 and the beginning of chapter 19, what we see is believers in Jesus very strategically used by God to increase the knowledge and understanding of other people by pointing them to the truth concerning Christ in all of its fullness. Brothers and sisters, one of the most profoundly important things that you and I do for one another in the body of Christ and that we do in the world is to instruct and exhort each other in the body to sound doctrine. Doctrine is not a four-letter word. Doctrine is a beautiful gift from God. And that job description applies to every single child of God in our dealings with every other child of God that we ever come to know. At the beginning of of Ephesians chapter 4, Paul makes it clear that the very essence of how we walk in a manner worthy of our amazing calling in Christ is by lovingly being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace within the body of Christ. And then he proceeds in that chapter to make it clear that the very essence of that diligent protection of the church's unity happens when we speak the truth to each other in love. And that means we tell each other sound doctrine. He's not talking about the, you know, the, the molecular number of some element. He's, he's talking about the truth concerning Jesus. We speak the truth to each other in love. When every individual believer fulfills that command toward every other believer, every part of the body doing its work, what we end up with is a church that is built up both in unity and in truth, a church that is protected from being, as Paul says, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. We get a church that is always growing up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. Beloved, falsehood abounds from every corner of human experience, and it's way worse than I ever thought it would be in my lifetime. We live in a culture of wretched lies, of the, of the most catastrophic and fatal nature, and they are called good by the culture that we live in. The only two sources, the only two sources from which we will ever hear the truth is God's Word and the people who point us to God's Word. In order for us to be like Priscilla and Aquila and Paul in the lives of other people, we must know God's Word. Personally, His Word must richly dwell in us, Colossians 3.16, and we must relentlessly seek to know all of it. Knowing a little bit of God's Word is 
way less protection and equipment than God intends for his children. Even Satan used the Bible to try to tempt Jesus. But Jesus knew the whole thing. Beloved, the gospel of Jesus Christ is found in the Bible from cover to cover. In all its parts and in all of its progression, from the almost uncountable Old Testament passages that foretold or foreshadowed the first and second comings of Christ, to the Gospels that record Christ's direct teachings and Christ's miracles and Christ's death and resurrection and post-resurrection appearances, to the epistles that fulfilled Christ's promise to his disciples that the Holy Spirit would not only bring to their remembrance the things that they had heard from him, but would teach them things they weren't even ready to hear when he was among them. Truth that clarifies, I'm talking about the epistles here, truth that clarifies and very substantially expands on the words that Jesus directly spoke when he was here. Guys, we do not have a red-letter-only gospel. We have a gospel that is from cover to cover in the Bible, and God means for us to know it. To know it, to treasure it in our hearts, and to share it with each other and with the world. None of us will ever be finished in this lifetime with the assignment to build up the church in the word of the cross. If that feels like a daunting assignment, that's because it is. But it's an assignment empowered by God. Every time you pick up your Bible, God magnifies your effort. He inhabits your effort. His word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, able to, to discern the innermost thoughts of the heart. And it lays us bare before God. And if it is a big assignment, that means we need to get Get rolling with it. You and I, every one of us, are all called by God to be the Priscilla's and Aquila's and Paul's in this world and in the church. And we can't do that if we don't know the word. And we're also called to be like Apollos when it comes to humbly receiving the course corrections that God's word pointed out to us by faithful brothers and sisters, works in our hearts. Nobody has ever finished learning the Word of God and learning how to respond rightly to that Word. Now, if you're thinking, well, I don't even know where to begin with a task like that, I have good news for you. Steve Novakovich talked about it either last week or the week before when he stood up here. Read it. Okay? Read it. You want to start studying the Bible? Read it. And if you're reading it as a habit of life, I guarantee you, you're going to start studying it. Because as you read it, the Holy Spirit says, did you notice how that matches up with this over here? And all of a sudden, now you're doing what Bob calls triangulation. You're making the connections in the Bible because those connections are just leaping out at you as you expose yourself to more and more of the Word of God. So you want to know how to get started? Read it. And by the way, it's not a bad thing to listen to it. 
U version. Think about this. Before the printing press, the way that most Jews and most Christians received the Word of God was by hearing it. There were people in the in the synagogue, the temple, and the synagogues, and in the churches who had the copies of the actual written copies, but everybody else had to hear it. You know, if you if you wanted an Old Testament in those days, you'd need a trailer. All right. I also want to say that it's a it is a marathon. It's not a pole vault. Okay, and that means when you're if you get it, if you decide like Steve uh, recommended to us last time, you know. Pick a, a, pick a schedule, you know, a timeline, like reading the Bible through in a year. There's a bunch of aids for that on new version. There are written ones. There's all kinds of ways to do it. Steve said he's got a longer, like a five-year version. I'm working right now on a 90-day version. Whatever your approach is, when you mess up, don't go back. Don't try to make up for what you lost. Just pick up where you left off. Don't make it a monster, okay? Don't make it a monster. Don't worry about those numbers on the dates. Just pick up where you left off and get back in the race. If you're in a marathon, you know, and you fall and you stumble, you don't just sit there. You stand back up and you keep going. Whatever your process, whatever your schedule, when you have a bad day, even a bad week, just get back into it. That's how habits are formed. And when it becomes a habit, guys, when it becomes a habit of your life, you will miss it when you don't do it. I guarantee that. This is the single, last thing I'll say, this is the single most important habit of life you will ever have because every other spiritual discipline is nurtured and fed by this one. Be in the Word of God. Come to the word of the Lord to meet the Lord of the word, and he will not disappoint. Loving Father, thank you for your assignment to us, both to to know and to hide your word in our heart and then to share it with everybody that we can. Thank you, Lord, for making us interdependent in the body of Christ. We need each other to point us back to your word when, we, when we're struggling, when we're distracted, when we are overwhelmed. How many times you have blessed me in my Christian life through my brothers and sisters who just pointed me right back to your word, who spoke the truth to me in love. Father, make us faithful to do this for each other, that your church might be mighty in this world. And make us faithful, Father, to proclaim the truth to everyone who will listen and to everyone who won't. We leave it to you to to sort that out in the hearts of individuals because we don't save anybody. That's your work. Thank you, Father, for the power of your word. In Jesus' precious name, amen.